everyone. Welcome to our podcast on the incarnational interior life. I'm Abi Abraham, and with me I have... Father John Horn. It's a pleasure to have you, Father. Um, yeah, I think we can get right into it and kind of see how we came here, what we're doing this for, what maybe the purpose of it is, and and yeah, just have some questions, I guess, to start off with. How did you get here? So basically, you know... From your early life, was there this intuition that there is this, you know, I guess because we, we started this partially seeing an issue with, you know, this synthesis between the interior life and the body. But growing up, did you have that intuition in itself that there's there's something that the world is a little off or that you know, growing up, was your family pretty good about that? Was there some struggles there? I guess kind of walk us through as a child, what was that like? Because I know for, for me, there was definitely, definitely in my childhood, a significant part that contributed to where I am now. Well, what comes to mind really is the awe that was there as a little child in the midst of the messiness of life, you know, and um, the awe that was there uh, at mass, the all that was there in natural beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that somehow, like seeds of contemplation, I would say, you know, were planted with this childlike all that was experienced, of course, in my body and spirit simultaneously. And mm-hmm. um, that later on had to be recovered um, uh, because a lot of that, unfortunately, I had grown out of, so to speak, mm-hmm. but it was still present. And, of course, the gift of all is a presence of the Holy Spirit. But I wasn't thinking in those terms as a child. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, though, that was exceedingly important, um, the awe and wonder uh, of, of childhood um, in ordinary play and hard work, uh, helping out around the house. If I may ask respectfully, what was it like? With your parents, you know, was there conversations around just like what were the conversations around spirituality and, you know, how it related to, you know, growing up as a young man with sexuality and all these different things or even the witness of them as parents? What was that like? Uh, well, I would say, again, in in childhood, when I say childhood, I'm thinking of kindergarten first second grade mm-hmm. um, where things were very formative um, my father was uh, fascinated with uh, machines mm. and and uh, and mechanization of how things are produced and uh, I can remember him telling taking great delight in telling my sister and I stories um, everything from how potato chips were made to automobiles mm. and um but his fascination and his delight in telling those stories made a huge impact in terms of opening, I think, enkindling my own desire, um, not just to see and see and appreciate delight in mechanization, but in nature. And, mm-hmm. and my mother and father uh, would point out in the ordinariness of life uh, points of beauty um, My mother was a nurse, and so uh, there was ordinary good concern for the body. There was a 
I, what I would say a healthy nudity in the, in the family in terms of, uh, we only had one bathroom and, um, people would be very respectful, but would come and go in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 1950s. Um, and you grew up in Pennsylvania, right? I grew up in Columbia, Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, yeah. Pennsylvania Dutch area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember yeah. you telling me after the Theology of the Body course, they have the, the Black Rock Retreat Center there. So that's right. You're telling me you grew up there. That was pretty cool. I would say the first thing, I mean, just saying this spontaneously, the first thing was uh, an acceptance of the beauty of the body and the ordinary nudity that a family would have in and around a bathroom with taking baths. We didn't have a shower at the time. And, um, of course, that changed around uh, puberty where there was more privacy, you know, for my sister and myself. We had separate rooms. and um, But I don't know, I'll just start there. So mm -hmm. there was a healthy sense of... Um, I wasn't shamed about my body at an early age that, uh, I mean, there were moments, you know, but I think that came more, uh, in my awareness, uh, around puberty, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, I don't know how far you want me to go with like learning, uh, as much as you're comfortable with uh, learning yeah, the facts. Like, well, it's a funny story, but I didn't know what the F word meant mm -hmm. uh, when I was, let's see, I was in about fourth grade mm -hmm. and um, my sister was having a sleepover party with her friends. She's three years older than me. Okay. This is very funny, I think, but, but also uh, a point of, of shame and wonder that, that are conflictual. Um, so I wanted to be included in some of the games and, 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 uh, some of the things that were taking place at the sleepover, but my sister didn't want any part of me as your younger brother around. <laughs> um, and all I knew was that the F word was, uh, was a dirty word. That's all sure. I knew, yeah. you know, I didn't know what it meant or anything like that. And this is fourth grade, uh, roughly. And uh, so I w ran up the stairs when I was excluded and I screamed, you know, <laughs> the F word, F you, <laughs> you know, to my sisters and all, and all her and all her friends. And they were just beginning puberty. Yeah. And so they were young girls in late grade school. And I just like screamed it in great anger, <laughs> you know, and um, and my mother was horrified, you know, and uh and so she I, she pulled my father aside and said, you know, Johnny, it's time to have a conversation with your son. <laughs> and at that time, he came upstairs and uh, sat down with me and uh, explained just the biological basics of uh, marital intimacy, of intercourse. And uh, it was very uh, it was a very functional description. It wasn't filled with awe and wonder. Mm. Um, it it was gentle. Um, he was uh, he was not angry that I had this outburst. Um, I think in retrospect, he was probably a little humored himself. Uh, but it, it was sober. It was uh, gentle, uh, but only functional. Mm. You know, there wasn't any sense. So the wonder that my Dad taught me around uh, mechanization and nature and uh, looking for providence. He was, uh, it didn't translate in that formative event. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, he did the best he could, but 
I long for the day both in classes and um, and in parenting as a spiritual husband and father like we both are that I think one of the most amazing gifts that can be given is uh, an intentional, beautiful uh, teaching of of sexual intimacy and how how awe is and wonder is is such a part of of, of this uh, of this gift, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's in most people's stories anyway. I, I don't find that was too much part of the story of mm-hmm. how they learned the quote unquote facts of life. I do have a close friend who. Uh, he wouldn't mind me saying it. Uh, Father Peter Ryan, he teaches moral theology mm. out at Sacred Heart Detroit. Yeah. Um, his mother was an art history major. And actually, he I listened to how he learned. We were telling each other in college how we learned the quote-unquote facts of life. And that was one of the most beautiful stories I had ever heard, that his well, mother actually sat down and through art um, with him as a little child explained, and, and his brothers and sisters explained the beauty of marital intimacy. Now, I find that to be very rare, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I wished I had had that. And I'll stop there for now. But the, a, a conflict started to, that there was something to be ashamed of, um, that sexuality was very functional. There wasn't an integration with all um, that had been there in so many other dimensions of family life. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting because you're you're kind of sharing how your father, especially, was a man of awe, like in yeah. in general sense of like every other area of life, and it seems like maybe he just didn't have the language to communicate that or didn't connect the dots himself, and I, I you know, I feel like that's even one step past <laughs> what we see in so many people nowadays, where even that sense of awe for like life in general is lost you know people it's a very functional approach to everything whether it be work or machinery or you know nature and you know is it's it's really interesting to hear somebody that you know had those together in a very beautiful way but that that next step of like oh does this come into the sexual realm as well or or maybe even if you had it you know an inability to maybe communicate that you know that's Man. Well, I think in retrospect, even as we're speaking right now, um, I think he did have all there, but he, as you say, he didn't really have the language. Right. He didn't know how to communicate it. Yeah. Um, and how do I know this? It's coming back to me in my memory right now. You know, memory is so important in, in Christian spirituality. Uh, our whole cells are contained there. Uh, when my mom and dad would go out for the groceries, again, this is around puberty for me and a little older for my sister she's three years older so this would be like she'd be in high school i'd be in junior high on thursday nights every two weeks the paycheck would come and my parents would go out and get groceries and while they were out getting groceries my sister and i would sneak around in their room and look at places we weren't supposed to look and my dad had um, fought in world war ii Mm. and he had a box of memorabilia And in that box were the love letters back and forth between my mother, who was in nursing school in Philadelphia, and himself uh, in Europe 
uh, with the army in World War II. And we would read these love letters while they were away buying groceries. And then be quick, when we would hear them coming back, we'd quick put it back in the box. And, and in these love letters, um, there was a very, there was awe. Yeah. And there was innocence around um, joking about, um, not intercourse, but joking about dating, mm-hmm. joking about, in, in very affectionate ways about, I can remember a picture of a, of a bar restaurant in, in uh, Paris where my father was, and he had an arrow there and saying, this is where we would neck if you were, if, <laughs> if, 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 if you were here right That's now. That's awesome. <laughs> and then expressing, and then my sister and I would read that. And, you know, I mean, those love letters were very innocent in a certain way according to date in light of today's standards, I mean, they wouldn't, they, I don't, they wouldn't really approach R rated. <laughs> uh, and yet, um, yeah, there was, so there, there were, I, my father just didn't have the language, yeah. Uh, yeah. but I could see it in other ways when I look back. Uh, and the way he told us about, uh, the beauty of their early years of marriage and he wouldn't get into any detail, but he would refer to marital intimacy and, uh, and talk about how joyful and playful it was um, and how he, he and my mother were so grateful when we were conceived and born. So we would like to hear stories like that, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was very general. Um, but that come to think of it that complemented the overly functional and mechanistic explanation of the quote-unquote facts of life yeah so I, I it was an incredible gift my father was a man full of all mm. he didn't understand we we were cultural catholics we there was not much of a personal relation there wasn't mm. a personal relationship with jesus or the holy spirit except in the consoling holy communion and going to confession um personal relationship with the Lord, you know, and integration with body and spirit didn't happen for me until my twenties in graduate school. And that was only a beginning. That was really just a beginning, Mm -hmm. but we were cultural Catholics. Um, I wished we had prayed the rosary together, but we didn't. And I I didn't know how to pray with scripture until I was in my Mm twenties. We didn't pray with scripture. We just basically went to mass on Sundays and, our social life was around the parish, and it was an atmosphere of faith for sure, but um, not not a personal encounter with Jesus, except in Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. That was emphasized, and and that in fact was ongoing from First Communion on. Yeah, which was very performative mm-hmm. um, in my own life. When I look back, I mean, I think that's the primary way in which I was drawn into a relationship with myself in Jesus. It was through First Holy Communion. Mm. Yeah. So you knew that as a child, or is it more looking back? Did, did you feel something kind of special as a child during that? I did. I had a very mystical experience at First Holy Communion, wow. but I didn't have the language for it. Mm. That came much later in my 20s. Um, but no, I knew... Holy Communion was well. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said it in these sure. words then. But I mean, I knew it was Jesus. Mm-hmm. I would have said that. Mm-hmm. 
but the risen presence of Jesus that was filling me with awe, I, I, I just knew it in my experience, but not, I couldn't talk about it. I didn't know how, because the relationship was, um, it was more, uh, relationship was, you, we didn't talk in immediate terms. We talked in third-person terms. Mm. And so um, I needed an awakening in my heart yeah. uh, beyond this deep, consoling love that was present whenever I'd go to Holy Communion. Yeah. And did, did that stay with you into your transition into you know college years, graduate school, that inner awareness of, even if you didn't have the full language yet and that, you know, transition into the first-person relationship, did that inner awareness of the Eucharist kind of stick with you through it all? It did, actually. It was amazing. And because college was a very dark time for me, um, but I, through God's grace, I never fell away from going to, to Mass. Mm. And there was always this, what I would say, numb consolation. Like I would always whenever things were especially painful or difficult or I didn't understand what was going on uh, or there was maybe an overpowering um, confusion or loneliness, uh, existential angst, I don't know, different words to describe it. When life was just uh, very dark, I mean, I still, during Mass, I would experience the consoling presence of Jesus. And I think that's why I never fell away was like, it was the only place where there would be light mm. in the darkness and consolation. Cause I was, it was, I was really confused in college. I drank way too much and all sorts of other things I won't talk about sure. publicly, but you know, lots of, um, yeah, lots of confused sexuality. Mm in college. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, this amazing that in the, in the messiness of all of that, uh, it was clear to me, you know, that Jesus was making himself present. Um, that's amazing to re recall right now yeah. with you, you know, yeah, I haven't that's, thought that's about that. Out to I haven't me. thought it's, about that in a long time. It's incredible. Like just these, well, in the case of the Eucharist, not a little experience, but how through all of that, that inner awareness of Christ's presence without even knowing the language, I think, you know, hearing it speaks to a deeper reality than even if you had the language at the time. Because there was something, there was something naturally there. There was, there was something that the Lord was inputting without you being like, well, this is what I should feel. And... Oh, that's right. No, I did. Yeah, it wasn't. No, it was raw, consoling love. Mm -hmm. You know, my father, back to my father and my mother too, but my father did, he was a self-educated man, but he didn't read like Catholic classics or anything like that. But little did he know, I'm not sure how he learned it, but he would always teach my sister and I to look for the Father's providence, especially when things were dark or difficult. And that was a that was an echo that he 
he taught us, it came up at his funeral. We actually laughed about it. That so so when things were dark in college, there was. I know later on we're probably going to uh, talk about uh, hope and how Pope Benedict's encyclical on hope is so beautiful. But when I when I look back now, uh, my father. And my mother would say, it's always darkest before the dawn. Mm. That was always, I mean, they lived that faith. They believed that. It wasn't just a slogan, you know, or um, something they thought they were supposed to say. Um, They really believed it. And that was imparted to my sister and myself. That faith was imparted to us. Now we had to make our own choices around, around faith. But I think... During back to the dark days of college, I think that there was always a hope inside mm. receiving in receiving the Eucharist. Um, thanks be to God, there was that hope, you yeah. know, just like a. It wasn't a hope about things always working out. It was just a hope in the middle of that there was basic goodness ran deeper or light would run deeper than the darkness. Basic mm. goodness would run deeper than, than any um, ugliness or sin or confusion. Yeah. That was imparted. Yeah. The faith and the hope. Yeah. So it wasn't just optimism because there was many, there were many times at the cross, so to speak, although I didn't have that language again, um, that uh, you'd hope against hope and it would be real. It wouldn't be a mental exercise. It would be, well, it's the Holy Spirit being part of the relationship with myself as an image of Jesus or yourself, you know, and I, I just didn't know how to identify a relationship though it was it was just a numb response mm. yeah what was the, the the transition or i guess the the awakening period because you know obviously it didn't skip from that to priesthood no i guess what yeah. what was that that period of I'm, I'm guessing father peter ryan was involved and Father Peter Ryan actually was very involved. He yeah. taught me how to pray. Uh, he was involved in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, mm. uh, something that uh, it's one of my reasons why I think I feel a deep kinship with uh, uh, participants in JY uh, because of the Phillips course and and um, just this basic awakening of encounter with the living presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I didn't have that uh that came about in graduate school. Um, I was at Georgetown in the in the mid seventies, uh, getting a degree in government, thinking, "Oh, I would work for the government in some capacity, State Department or Peace Corps." I wasn't sure. I was just trying to find my way. Sure. But I was getting a master's in government. Father Peter Ryan uh, and I lived and worked as RAs at Georgetown Prep uh, uh, boarding school just to help ends meet financially. Um, was that like a high school? It's a high school okay. for, it's a, yeah, for a lot of wealthy students. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a middle-class family. It was a different world to me, but, um, 
but I was around a, a, a good Jesuit community at the mm-hmm. time. Um, they, and, uh, with ordinary problems, but, uh, basically a good Jesuit community. And, uh, the community of RAs were, uh, law students, dental students, graduate students in the DC area. And, uh, so Father Peter Ryan invited me to go to a charismatic prayer meeting, and uh, I didn't want to go, but uh, I was lonely and looking for ordinary companionship. We were friends from college, mm-hmm. close friends from college up in Baltimore. And um, so I went, and I, I had all kinds of questions. Uh, we'd go out for pizza and beer afterwards, and he'd answer the questions as best as he knew how. But he had had a profound conversion and he wanted to share that with me. And um, I kept being attracted by the joy of the people, mm. even though a lot of other things were confusing to me at the at the prayer meeting. In those days, Catholic University had a, a group of 700 or 800 that would meet on Saturday evenings. And wow. George, Georgetown had something equivalent, 500 to 600 people. And then we'd, we'd inevitably get invited to someone's home all during the week to study scripture and pray together. And that's where I learned so how to pray. specifically a charismatic group? There was groups of 500 or so at these two universities? At Georgetown and across town at Catholic U, it was even larger. Wow. Um, they were the days when things were erupting at Duquesne yeah. University in Pittsburgh. And um, anyway, so I started, I made a Life in the Spirit seminar and my life was turned upside down in terms of, I would say, very particularly, um, I was dating a young woman at the time who was expecting to be engaged. Uh, she was a year behind me and up in school at Loyola in Baltimore. But um, I don't know, things weren't really working out in our relationship. And um, what started the, the encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit was that I started to experience deep loneliness being transformed into uh, into joy and solitude, and um, loneliness even being with this this girl at the time. Loneliness even being with this girl yeah. and with really good friends. Yeah, still that's, very lonely. Like that's something a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> oh, very. Yeah, I had good friends, as the world understands good friendships. Yeah, but uh, Father Peter Ryan was one of my best friends. There was a whole group of us that hung out together. Uh, young men and women in college uh, for parties and study and sports. and But, um, oh yeah, very lonely at my core, you know, trying to figure out life and sexuality, although I wasn't even thinking in those terms. Mm. But when I started to learn how to pray with Scripture in the first person, Lexio Divina, and the charismatic gifts were fostered at these meetings, well, I just fell in love in a whole new way, mm. a whole new way. Um, and I had loved as best as I've known known how in friendship. Um, but, and then this is what happened with the awe. As a child, I want, always wanted to be a priest. Um, but that got forgotten and lost along the way. It was there inside. Um but I wanted a family. I wanted to be married. I couldn't reconcile uh, celibacy. I didn't even know what the word meant, actually. Um, and what started to happen when I encountered Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the first person through Scripture, um, 
I had like a prolonged year during graduate school. I kept slogging through graduate school just to get the degree, even though it was not really where my passions were. Um, Government, in terms of friendship, service of the poor, um, good international relations, politics in in the best sense of the word, like Aristotle would write about it, Mm. but not the way the world usually thinks about politics. I mean, that was attractive to me. And politics is all about friendship, really, mm. uh, according to Aristotle and others. But um, that's what was attractive to me. Well, here I was meeting Jesus as a friend in a way that I never knew friendship before. And uh, still trying to figure that out. It's uh, it, all these years later. Uh, and, and really, it's a mystery to be lived, not to be figured out. But um, when the loneliness started to be transformed into um, solitude and sense of friendship and communion, I started experiencing how chaste celibacy could be a gift. Mm. And this astounded me. And lots of things started falling together inside. And um, it put in perspective a relationship with my, with my girlfriend, with my future hopes, and the awe about priesthood from childhood came back. And I could see that there wasn't a conflict between wanting to have a family and a wife and, and chase celibacy actually. Were they synonymous inspirations or did one come first? Like that understanding chase celibacy and then the thoughts of the priesthood came back or was it you had, you know, something from your childhood came back. So you had to wrestle with it. Yeah. What came back was, no, it wasn't that clean. It was very messy. (laughs) It was very messy. I just learned how to pray with scripture in an ordinary way through the difficulties of graduate school. And I just kept being so consoled by the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I just fell in love that I was just hungry for the prayer. I mean, I would miss it if I couldn't wait to have time to pray. And then I went, started going to daily mass and um, I needed to be catechized, even though I had gone to Catholic school. And I needed to be catechized in terms of an incarnational relationship in my interior life. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, although all these seeds had been planted. So one night, about a year into this deep, consoling love, um, I stayed up late and... Uh, at the uh, boarding school and went out on the golf course. And um, I think I was given the grace to not be self-centered, at least for a while, uh, because I kept receiving, receiving, you know, and I kept amazing, like, what was happening for me. But I was given the grace to, like, turn and and say to Jesus, what is it that you want, Mm. you know, ready to give more to him what he wants um, rather than, it was kind of a one-sided relationship. I was just, and it still is, primarily receiving. But of course, the image of Jesus in me at the time, I wouldn't, wouldn't have said it that way then, but was being, was being loved and strengthened. Anyway, when I ask, what is it that you want, um, a cataclysm, occurred inside my heart of warmth and fire that's never left me. Um, It's very quiet, 
but it's burned into my memory. And I heard him say, not audibly, but I heard him say in my heart, um, I want what you've always wanted. Mm. And that, it was like his desire from outside was meeting my desire on the inside with such warmth and love. And time just stopped. And, um, and the desire for priesthood, uh, I knew, I knew that's what I always wanted as well as, uh, I would find out many years later how that would tie in with being a spiritual husband and father. I didn't have any of that language. I didn't have any of that experience. It was very rudimentary and foundational but i ran upstairs it was two o'clock in the morning roughly or something like that and woke pete ryan up he was an ra on another floor and uh we sat up late and talked and i said i know i know what i know what i'm gonna be wow and uh and i and he said what what <laughs> i said a priest he said what kind i said i don't know <laughs> and i said and so i took another year of prayer with Lexio and finished my degree and then looked for a religious orders. But uh, I want what you've always wanted through all the ups and downs of life. Uh, and there have been plenty that has never left. And, and um, to know, you know, through no merit of my own. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I just was like this, fumbling along and the Lord was revealing himself. Wow. But the awe, the awe came back. Yeah, and what really stood out to me was that transition into the first person. Yeah. You know, I, I think even That's right. From you as a child almost coming more into a childlike posture as a young adult there. <laughs> That's you beautiful know, for you like, to say that. Yeah. You it's know? true. Because you went from Feeling that special feeling with Jesus, but maybe, maybe to put it in conversational language, going from, I wonder what Jesus wants, into that question on the golf course of, what do you want? Like that, that transition, yeah, like I said, it, it feels like almost entering more of a childlike posture of just knowing you are speaking to somebody who will listen. And the response back was in the first person too, not a general guideline of what to do. Yeah, and it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. it's, di- it's divine love. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I'm thinking, talking with you right now. I mean, I wasn't sure how this conversation was going to go. And uh, anyway, so this is just spontaneous. But, you know, when you deal with loneliness, when loneliness is dealt with, I mean, that starts integrating sexuality in your body in a way that you never imagined or understood. And so... It affects your desires, and and when you find someone in your desire to be wanted and loved and known, and you find the other person wanting you there, I don't know if cataclysm, I mean, cataclysm's the best way I can put it, but I mean, there are different ways, like thirsting for my thirst or hungering for my hunger, and you must experience this in the sacrament of marriage yourself, like when you are in love with your wife, and she wants you to want her and then you're, I mean, it's, it, it, it loses its categories yeah. and all of a sudden it's just like pure desire. 
for each other in love and Jesus being love. I mean, talk about ordering sexuality and intimacy. Uh, I mean, I think this is the core or one, let me put it, one major way into the mystery of how relational integration takes place where we're not made to be alone, as God says in Genesis. You know, we're, we're, and we've never been alone, but to actually taste that in the interior life, in everyday ordinariness, mm-hmm. uh, oh, it just changes everything. I don't think much integration in sexuality and Christian spirituality happens unless uh, the depths of of the fear of being alone is met by the other, mm. by Jesus, you know, and Jesus through a wife or or husband, you know. But I would have never been able to say that then. Gosh. I'm 70 now that I was in my early twenties. I, I had not, I had none of this language mm-hmm. so I'm excited for people, for men like yourself and, and your wife, I mean, to learn theology of the body and prayer at a, at such a young age. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything more beautiful actually, because of course Jesus has a risen sexuality. Mm-hmm. So people don't usually think of that, but of course his bodily resurrection is so he's pouring himself into our bodies and spirits, his body and his spirit, every time we receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what does that mean? And what is that experience? Yeah. No, sometimes I I think about how I wonder what like revolutionary teaching is coming about nowadays because i'm like i feel like i have everything (laughs) like not that i myself have learned everything but i'm like there's so much (laughs) like we're so blessed with like so much that you know years ago like people just didn't have the language for but it's become thanks be to god so popular in the church now maybe not processed as much as you know we would like and and people really should have the blessing to have but at least it's it's accessible in a certain sense you know people like christopher west or father timothy who have really made this accessible to the wider world you know i'm just always in deep gratitude that it's there because yeah like I, I needed that and you know that was the way the lord spoke to me i guess was through through the well you've shared people. with me that this transformed your own life yeah yeah, yeah. i mean well, I, I started with childhood for you because you know, that's, I guess, for everyone, but in a, in a particular way where it started for me, I remember you were sharing about that, the healthy nudity that you had in the family. It made me think about my brothers would always make fun of me because I'd, uh, I, so my oldest brother's nine years older, my second brother's six years older. So there's quite an age gap between us, um, especially in the younger years, that gap is pretty pronounced. So they would always make fun of me because I'd run around the house naked all the time. <laughs> <laughs> they'd be like oh be grab a towel put on some underwear or something but i just remember as a kid like i just i didn't understand why i was like it's like unless i have to wear a winter coat what's the difference <laughs> like you know so, and that that stuck with me for a long time and i remember like you were saying when when puberty hit of like this confusion 
that set in and and weirdly enough it wasn't even necessarily it, it there was something coming from within a confusion but then there was a lot of things coming from without i remember this one experience that was really the core transition for me of of a life of a really big struggle was was in middle school up till that point i actually think i had thanks be to god like nowadays i see kids way younger sexual trauma some experience that completely takes away the childhood innocence there but i think for me fortunately i think until around middle school the, the confusion was slowly settling in but around middle school i remember i had this one experience of um we were just sitting in like a coffee shop or something or boba shop milk tea <laughs> in the bay area where i grew up it's very popular and there was a group of friends and this group of friends they were just talking about masturbating and it was like yeah a group of guys and there were some girls there too everyone was talking about it and i was like i don't know what's going on and I had some intuition of what it was. Sure. I think just having older brothers and growing up at the time, I knew most of what things were. So, like, in that sense, my childhood innocence still early on was maybe I'd learned things I shouldn't have. But I still wasn't, you know, I wasn't attracted to, to anything like that early on. But I remember that day, and I'm sure this is maybe an extreme experience, but also I don't know. I was made fun of for not masturbating because I, I i never somehow came up in the conversation i was like yeah I, I just don't really i don't do that i don't i don't think that's good for you i didn't even know why it wasn't good for you at the time but i think just as a young what 12 year old or something like that i knew there was something somehow you, somehow you knew yeah and um because at that point my parents never even talked about it but i just i had some intuition that there was something off about it and i remember sharing that and like I was just pounced on like just the heck is wrong with you. It's a natural process. You never felt that you're never going to understand your body. You know, you're never going to you know experience this, this and that. This is why you can't X, X and Y. Like it, there's so many different backlash to something that simple in the sense of something that simple as in like, I thought this was a given that we're like, that we, we don't do this. And that, like shifted things for me just like that because for the first time in my life i'd experienced a deep deep sense of shame about my body and and how i treated it and what you believed yeah exactly because i it, it just made me question everything from there my natural looking back my natural childlike instinct to know that there, this was not something to be done because there was there was no language to it there was nothing that I knew in a, in a moral right or wrong sense. It was just like, this isn't something we do as humans. And I remember that being shattered that day. And I mean, from there, it was just, it was a, it was a long standing battle of like a confusion with my body that led to me rejecting it slowly, little by little and thinking that, and this is where it started that, you know, the theme of this podcast in my own life of as a, as a child, I always had an awareness that Christ was present with me. It was weird. I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew there, there's two things there. 
there was an awareness of Christ's presence and there was something that I've always felt almost, I've always felt special, which is strange. I never knew why. I never, like, even special amongst other Christians, other, like, I just, I felt special. And I, you know, at times I struggled thinking that maybe that's a little, like, cocky or something, but it's not that. It's not a pride, but there, there was something that I just felt like. You're different. Yeah, it's a gift you are given. Yeah, yeah. That that must be a mystery to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I felt that early on as a child. So, like I, I kind of stuck with that, and that awareness of Christ, because I knew I had that. I stepped into it, but in a very corrupted way. So instead of it being coming coming from a childlike innocence. It stepped into body bad, spirit good. Mm. Classic conundrum of mm. it's, well, this is clearly not good. And I still recognized it as not good. But then it became, well, I should do this. And I, sh- I should change my mind because everyone else is telling me that that's the right way to be. A corrupted sexuality. And that, that well, looking back, a corrupted sexuality. But at the time, I was like, I'm corrupted. You know, I, I'm the one that's weird. And it just turned into a hatred of, of the experience of the human body. So mm. in a general sense of why are we like this, we, but then it stepped into the specific sense of there's something deeply wrong with me specifically. Mm. So if I step into more prayer, if I, you know, become a, a better CCD student, if I you know, act better, all these different things, that that was better. And that one day we won't even have to deal with our bodies. Mm. And and that's better. And that's the aim of the Christian life. I believe that as a, as a young middle schooler, that that was the aim of the Christian life, is to, oh to make it through this test to finally escape our body. Oh, my. And um, the issue was... Nobody ever corrected me on that, <laughs> you know, and it it's kind of like what we were talking about. My parents didn't have a language for it, you know, and I think they didn't have a language for it from their parents. And it just goes back generations of, you know, even, even specifically, I guess, within Indian Catholic culture, a, a specific shame that exists. I mean, it's it's universal, but a very in a very particular way of that this is simply for procreation. And I I felt that. I felt that deep within, even <clears> as, <throat> as a child growing and seeing other couples, you know, my parents, and a general sense of, like, whatever this thing is, whatever the sexual act is, whatever this relation between man and woman is, it's only meant to be for procreation. Oh uh, it's a functional purpose and i was never corrected on that (laughs) you know i was it was just like the intuition that came out of you know a wound of learning the wrong way and then it was just never corrected it was never corrected in ccd it was never corrected anywhere so as i went down that path of rejecting the body then the shift happened of well i can't do this so then i rejected interior life i rejected my spirituality that that's wrong 
because when I entered high school, then all the temptations of sexuality came running right back. And you can only, well, it's not that they ever left, but I couldn't fight them anymore. And because it was just a suppression model, there was never any actual healing. And then it became, well, if I'm accepting this, not just accepting, embracing this fallen sexuality, then I have to reject this. And that's when I left my faith behind. So maybe, you know, going to church or whatever, but I was like, this is BS. You know, what are like, they're not accepting reality. They as in the church, they as in, you know, my parents, my cultural upbringing of this is clearly what humans experience. These desires are clearly what all humans experience. So if they're rejecting this, what I thought to be a rejection, <clears throat> they must be wrong. Why am I, why am I doing this? Why, why would I care about this if they're clearly wrong about one of the most basic human experiences? And so notice that cycle and looking back when you, when you brought up memories, I hope we can have a whole conversation on memories, but looking back when I was able to years later at my memories, I noticed that that cycle of as soon as I rejected the body and went completely spiritual, there was only a certain period of time before I rejected the spiritual and completely indulged in the body. And that cycle went back and forth <clears throat> until a, a proper healing. And that, that only came to me, it's funny, you, you, a couple years into high school, I had a sort of reconversion after, it was like a bad breakup, bad relationship. But even in that reconversion, it was definitely the Lord and it was definitely something that sparked a journey for me. I wouldn't be here without it, but it was still very, very incomplete because it was just a legalistic conversion in that I recognized and understood intellectually why the way I was living was wrong and something in my conscience that was telling me it was wrong. So that conviction came back and thank God for that. But it was still incomplete because it was still a suppression model. And I remember after the conversion, it was like, you know, I'd get praise from people at the church and like, oh, look at, look at his life. Look at how he's living now. But my real friends, the people I'd actually spend time with, would see how dead I was. That I was this morally upright Catholic, you know, young, young high schooler or, you know, whatever. But the people that would actually spend time with me were like, you used to be so fun. What happened? And <laughs> you didn't know how to pray from your desires. No, no. You, the first person that you didn't know how to pray from. Absolutely your not. It was. It was just uh, suppress the desires. I was a good Pharisee for a long time. <laughs> you know, I was. I was what, out of, what What happened? If you don't mind me asking, what happened to that knowledge about being so special? Like that. I mean, there you are running around with no clothes on a lot as an innocent child without shame. And and then as you grow older, there's this, even then, but as you grow older, there is even now, of course, this knowledge, I would say in the Holy Spirit, that you really are special. And it's not an ego. It's, It's this mystery of having been chosen 
to know this. Um, so what, what I'm rambling a little bit, but what happened with the knowledge that you were so special? It sounds like it must have gotten lost or, yeah. or some violence was done to it or something. What, what, how do you understand it? I mean, that would I be, think that would be really painful. Yeah. I particularly that, so that stuck with me for a while, particularly <clears> when <throat> I feel like I lost it or it was kind of shattered for a bit was middle of high school after that bad breakup I had mentioned. I had just, I'd done very horrendous things and I realized or, you know, realized in a, in a false sense that if I was capable of doing those things that I wasn't special, that was, that was the sort of language I put to myself without even knowing it of like, oh my. if I could do these things, the very things that I despise other people for, or that, you know, the, even, even the secular world will look down upon, then like, how could I claim to be special? And so it was, even if the feeling was there, your words are very powerful to yourself, right? So speaking those words into that feeling, looking back lies of, it, it changed the feeling itself. You forget or forgot, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. that the word was made flesh in you, that you are special, and you started believing other words inside that were quite violent, where you ended up despising yourself because you could see you were capable of what you despise in other people. St. Ignatius Loyola says the devil is the enemy of human nature. Mm, yeah. There's the enemy of human nature. Not that yeah. every not to blame the devil for everything, but but the reality. Wanting you and your humanity to completely lose the word made flesh in your body and your spirit that you are special and mm. you were and are not just in some sentimental way, but just at your core. And that, I mean, that's a, how did you recover from that violence? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, in a way it's diabolical. It was, it was 100%. I mean, cause I kept that, like I said, even into my conversion. I, I kept that lie. It, it, it came into my conversion. It shifted in a bit in the sense that it started with you saying the word made flesh. I genuinely believed, well, I didn't have the language for it. It was like the devil made flesh in me. Ooh. You know? Oh my like gosh. The that, opposite. Yeah. That, that's what I believed was happening was like, you're not that, you know, that sweet kid you were, you thought you were, you're not that, you know, citizen of the year, you thought you were the, you know, the, the good apple amongst your friends. That's not who you are. Um, it, it, it felt that way. It felt like you really thought you were like that. No, no. And, um, so even after my conversion, it still went into that. And I remember, I remember this specifically because a spiritual director I had couple years later corrected this as I was sharing when I was talking about, yeah, like, you know, I've been, you know, the sin I was struggling with, I've been 
kind of recovering from it. And one thing that it helped me was recognizing the great evil that I have the capacity for. And he stopped me right there. And it, I was talking about something good in the sense that I was slowly stopping a certain sin. But he stopped me at the framework of thinking that thinking from the framework of the capacity for evil that I have, because that had stuck with me. And that was how I was living was. Oh, you weren't don't, talking about the framework. You were actually believing the framework. Exactly. That, that I was living out of that, that <clears throat> recognize the capacity for evil, recognize that, you know, you, you could be Hitler just as much as anyone else. Recognize that, feel that. So you don't do bad. And, he stopped me right there. And thanks be to God, he did. I, at the time, I was so thrown off. I was like, I was just talking about how I'm like stopping this one. You, you were <laughs> on a roll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were, yeah. yeah. And, but, but he stopped wow. me right there. And, and like I said, thanks be to God, he did. Because it, it made me challenge that notion from then on. And I, and I think, honestly, providentially, that's, that's where even theology of the body, that's where, you know, it, that, it started with Theology of the Body. I just came upon, upon a talk on YouTube by Christopher West, and, and that sparked something in me. And then at that time, it was partially good, but partially, again, coming from the same place of, I need to make up for it by serving the Lord. So even my journey to seminary started with that, of I, I need to offer something to the Lord that I, I owe him. And, but, but in a very corrupt way, and... Partially, there was there was something really good there that only looking back, I'm able to see how it how it helped me. But so that that journey to seminary, that's where I feel like it it really took a turn for the better. In that, Father Matt Alexander, um, one of my formators, whom you know, really helped me shift the language of my heart into who the Lord really was, whose voice, that simple question that he challenged me to ask every single time these thoughts came out of whose voice is this? I had never heard that my entire life, that there could be different voices. I thought any voice that wasn't my own was God's. And so it, it, it baffled me to know that there might be different voices playing into this. Those voices of shame, those voices of accusation actually might not be God. Not just might not be, they're not. And, well, and you could see how hideous when you start using religious language to reinforce shame yeah. uh, and fear or instead of your body and spirit being special in the word made flesh and enjoying later on in life in marriage, enjoying marital intimacy, not just for procreation, for procreation, but for good pleasure and union. And, yeah. That if you if you use religious, I think this is very common, unfortunately, and of course I used to in my own way. But to use religious language to reinforce despising my hum, my human body and spirit, it's a it's a pivot pivot point. That's an understatement. It's a it's an inner inner revolution to a true Christian spirituality from um, a despising of the flesh. 
of despising of the body. So thanks be to God. Yeah, I didn't know what the word discernment meant either. What other people were saying, they were discerning their finances and they were discerning. And I was like, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, I'd never really even heard the word before. And But these inner voices and to make distinctions between shame and fear and love and yeah. and back to your... So is this how you started to come back to knowing how special it was it was the start of the journey i would say you know okay because thank god for father matt yeah thank god for father matt yeah Yeah. i i owe him a lot um it was the start of a journey because i mean honestly i could probably say until like six months ago or say or so i was still on that seesaw of spirituality desire passion that these are contrary things that I need to balance out and it it was really only like I mean I was I was already married at that point six months in that it was and this is where marriage was clearly sanctifying for me where I had to I could not with myself I could I could fake it in a sense at least for to an extent I could act like there wasn't a necessary integration um because i wasn't it's easy to not love myself as much as i should but when it came to marriage and having to deal with the integration of what were the spirits in our marriage what were these different voices coming in what was the level of relationship and how did that tie into the desires that we both had Maybe the disagreements, maybe the the points of hurt, of past hurt, like all these different things that needed to be integrated within our marriage, within our bodies, within our souls. I couldn't run away from it because I love my wife too much, and I I couldn't. It's not it's not even just a matter of like knowing I shouldn't. The grace of the sacrament that was given to me was I can't like. And, and that's a unique grace. Like, I understand that that as a gift of I actually have an inability to run away from problems in our marriage because I, I just love her so much that I, I can't I can't do it. If I see a problem, I understand instinctually that I, I need to to connect something. I need to bring the Lord into this. We need to stop for a moment, figure out what spirit is here. And and go from there. I can't even, I still can't put words to it. I don't know why. But other than the fact that this was a unique grace given through the sacrament in our marriage as as being one, we can't just let these things keep going. Even if I could do it with myself. Do you, do you hear a connection? And it's okay if you don't. Uh, I'm very aware of the sacredness of our conversation mm. and the beauty of inviting um the listeners into the sacredness. Mm. It just was coming to me. Remember when you said you were made fun of when you, when there was that discussion of masturbation Mm. back in junior high or whatever it was, uh, and how things were shattered there in terms of like this certain knowledge you had. Um, Do you hear the connection between the certitude you have about not being able to, to run away from the love in your marriage and the certitude you had then mm. that was shattered 
But now it seems to me like, do you see a connection uh, there? I'm seeing it now. What, 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 are you, what are you seeing or what are you knowing? Yeah. I, I, I I'll share with you what I see later, but you, yeah. but you, but you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, right off the top of my head, I'm, I'm seeing that unique intuition come back because it's really not coming. Like I said, it's not coming from a should. So I, I know there's the, the should aspect of marriage and, you know, dealing with issues or whatever, but I don't even really think about that when it comes to her. I, I just think about an interior we must, not out of an obligation, not out of a fear, but out of pure love that like there is something affecting our love and we, we need to safeguard that. And for, for our good, for my good, not, and like looking back as a kid, when I had that intuition about the masturbation and there was something that I had no words for, I, I didn't even really understand what was going on, but there was that intuition. I didn't read anything like humanity or theology of the body, like any of these things back then. Like I, I had no idea what the church really even taught. Like I had some idea of, okay, this is probably not good, but there was more, more so than anything I was taught. There was an interior. This is just as a human person, not good. There's something ruptured here. And I feel like now, it's it it like my marriage has mended that in a sense of like more so than anything I've learned. Like I always tell people, some people you know they they hear I am into theology of the body or anything. I always tell people I've anything I've ever learned from theology of the body with with all respect to it is nothing compared to just that inner intuition I have with my own wife when we run into any sort of tension or our own, or our own experience of marriage. I can't duplicate it by anything I read. Sometimes it helps me put a language to it, but like it's, it's there and, it, and I believe it's from the sacrament. It's from the grace bestowed on us through that. Yeah. I don't know. That was, I don't know if it was rambling a little bit, but it was no, I, I think, but for that, not inner knowledge that was shattered to now be mended. I mean, that's glorious. You have to use your own words, but, um, and it also gives you this newness, I would imagine, mm -hmm. um, to guard, protect, uh, to enjoy your body and your spirit as one yeah. where what was shattered is now mended and being mended, you know, and, um, I, I can't help but think, you know, knowledge is a gift of the Holy spirit. You say intuition, like it's a certain knowledge you have, like it's actually the spirit indwelling in you interiorly. And that, that voice, <clears throat> excuse me, that voice, um, has a might to it, uh, the might of, of the Spirit's glory. It's 
full of awe, but it's full of um, co-creative joy and pleasure, God's own pleasure. Um, well, that's certainly different than despising yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it it praise I, God. I feel like it's Amazing. where it's incredible. Like it's because, like I said, I I had that framework of late high school of experiencing theology of the body through Christopher West, like learning the actual teaching, and then I had Father Matt give me a, a very baseline idea of discernment of spirits. And, and a general idea that I have in an interior life, like, or, or really a reminder, because as, you know, like I said, as a child, I kind of knew that, but a, a reminder of that interior life, but I still hadn't put the two together. <laughs> there was still maybe, for lack of a better word, at an elevated level, that seesaw <laughs> going back, back and forth between the two. But like I said, yeah, it's, it was really in, in marriage that, I was able to see that there, there has not just in the context of that's the beautiful thing that I didn't expect out of marriage was it's not just in the context of the us of, of Amanda and I, that I experienced, okay, that application of theology of the body and the interior life of us in our union, but also just in the eye, like it forced me in a beautiful way to reconcile the interior life and theology of the body in I, in Abi. So does that make sense? So like not, not just in, in our marriage, Amanda and Abi and, and the oneness there, but uniquely in me, I had to reconcile that. And I mean, that's where, oh my, like, I feel like everything and, I, and I, sometimes I need to be careful with this because it's not, I don't want to reject everything in my journey before. Absolutely not. But at the same time, there's this feeling of like everything before was nothing compared to the life I have with God now. Will you? Yeah. Go ahead. No, that, that's it. Like, I, I don't know how to explain just in the past couple months, like a real awareness of and not just yeah not just an intellectual awareness like a, a true f more real of a communion than i've ever experienced with any human person even my own wife of of a real communion with god that it feels inseparable and i couldn't have even desired it before like th that's how deep it is that i couldn't have even known what i wanted and that, that's what, what's, what stood out to me, what, you, what you're saying was, I want what you always wanted. I was like, maybe I did always want this. I just didn't know how to put words to it. Well, a couple of things I want to, they're just coming to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. In both of our stories, there's a, I don't know what the word is, um, or words, um, a reclaiming, a, a regifting of childhood innocence. Mm -hmm. 
for in both of our stories, no wonder Jesus teaches, you know, unless you become like a little child, yeah. you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So I think as we enter more the integration of, well, I remember once you said to me, theology of the body is, is not some specialization. To me, it's the heart of the gospel or something like that. Yeah, you said to me, the heart of the gospel is a lens through which to view everything. Yeah, it is for me too. I mean, I, I think that's related to what you're just saying is that our, our being, our hearts expand. It's heavenly. And we realize that we're housing God in our bodies and spirits and, and this beyond what we could have desired, what, mm. what you could have desired. Would, and this is being tasted and known uh, through the sacrament of your marriage. And then you're becoming more uh, the man that you are. Like John Paul says, like uh, the gospel, Jesus reveals us to ourselves and that we find in our nothingness, everything and more. Mm. And it just, but in both our stories and then, and, and this through chase celibacy, which is a different form of marriage, my own being a spiritual husband and father. And it's sort of like, well, I think we're often taken back to with some love and humor wondering have i ever really loved before mm. there's so much new in terms of what's i'm experiencing and what's possible this is almost as if the past in the present moment doesn't make sense because there's so much more in the present moment where yeah. eternity actually comes in the present moment or is in the present moment and and so what does it mean to like experience that in our bodies and spirits? Well, words fall short, but but this is how joy increases, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, silent words, verbal words. Um, yeah, I'm rambling too, but I want to hold that, that you would have this new confidence and knowledge uh isn't surprising to me because the innocence has been has been mended and is being restored and the same with myself all these mm -hmm. years later so i think it's about jesus's marriage to us mm -hmm. and the heavenly banquet of course in the present moment mm -hmm. um and anything that prevents us from experiencing that kind of joy and expanding love um needs not to be listened to, needs to be healed or rejected. Mm. Different voice. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I rejoice with you. But, I mean, you see the the similarity in terms of child? Absolutely. Childlike innocence being restored for both of us? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's interesting because it's like, <clears throat> it's like the resurrection, right, where it's, it's not merely uh, coming back to the childhood innocence, but a true resurrection of it, that there's like a glorified yeah. yes. childhood innocence that's gifted, that it's not, it's not just going back to being a child, that oh, there, there's no. something far greater that's renewed 
and yeah, glorified for lack of a better word. That's Christ's glorious resurrection, right? He didn't just come back the same as he was. He was truly resurrected, but in a glorified, glorified way. And I think in our own lives, you know, it does us good to recognize that as well, because that can be a temptation too to think pragmatically. <laughs> I wish I had just never lost it, you know. Of oh yeah, why, why did you even allow me to lose it? Why did you even allow me to to suffer that? Why did you allow me to go through any of that? I could have just stayed a child. And oh yeah. You know, I think <clears throat> yeah, Car- Carol Hauslander, she's a beautiful writer from Mystic from World War II, a woman, maybe you've heard of her. She wrote The Reed of God about Mary and The Crib and the Cross, I think is the title. Where she says that Jesus was never more a child than when he was on the cross. So you have this 33-year-old wow. man, God-man, and yeah, he isn't wanting to go back to be a child in Nazareth, but childlikeness is a is who God is in terms of an eagerness to enter into suffering with love, entering into death with love, and transforming suffering and, lo- and death. Um, children run wildly into, uh, lovingly into... Uh, dangerous situations not understanding of course jesus is free and lays down his life freely but you'll make many decisions i will too around whether or not to listen to the voice of shame or listen or be vulnerable as a child and receive what jesus received from the father and the spirit at the cross but the only way to know that is go into the interior life um and and then taste this glory, um, the greater glory, where the resurrection time kind of collapses, where the resurrection's at the cross, you know, and and the whole new life is opening up where we when we let ourselves intentionally be childlike as a grown man, um, or as a grown woman, and. Um, yeah, it's not a, we can we can subtly turn into turn spirituality into try to regrets and grasping and then and try to um, uh, be confusingly childish mm. and that's not what we're talking about, of course, or or um, not mature. That's the great paradox that we mature as Christians to become more childlike, mm-hmm. but w- which actually gives us more strength. It gives us a martyr strength. Uh, keeps us humble too because uh, childlike faith is dependent on us admitting that we, we talk about vulnerability as if it's an option it's not an option it's mm. it, it's reality it's it's the vulnerability of God is what we see in Jesus in the crib and on the cross and it's the vulnerability of God where the creative power of um that's for another podcast, you know. I know Brene Brown has this a podcast on the power of vulnerability, and uh, it's very beautiful. But when you add faith to what she's saying, 
you're all of a sudden part of the creativity of God. You're in a co-creative vulnerability. But vulnerability is not an option. I mean, we could choose to pretend that we're not vulnerable, but that's living a lie. Um, I remember um, uh, Sunil, who we both know, I remember somebody was sharing with me how he talks about uh, sometimes we put condoms on our hearts. Yeah, that's a good one. It, 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 it made me think of uh, <laughs> I like that. the vulnerability aspect of, I mean, even as, as co-creator and what, in, in the human world, what's the most vulnerable one can be? Yeah. In, in the marital act. We, we, we clearly put that forward, and I feel like that vulnerability, like you said, it's not an option. Without it, you, there's no life, quite literally, in, in, right. the, in the natural order and right. symbol Inti- of... Intimacy means yeah. we have to be unprotected. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the that sexuality can't... When it's mechanized, if it's me- if intimacy is mechanized in some form, it's destructive. Actually, it has to be freely unprotected. Just everyday relationships, not just sexual intimacy, but yep. um, and wise, of course. And but um, yeah, something we do some violence to ourselves when we try to mechanize intimacy, it's terribly violent and destructive. And it can be quite subtle. Mm. But, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, maybe we could close, like we were saying, with we talked about all this and, and some of our different wounds growing up, but hopefully for our audience there is a theme of hope arising from all this. And, you know, we kind of wanted to a tribute to Pope Benedict XVI as um, today was his funeral and you know we we now have a new intercessor hopefully and yes indeed and I, I think yeah it would do us is do us well we were um, and I, I was touched I, I don't know I think I saw it on a Facebook post or something somebody mentioned the encyclical Space Salvi which I, I never got a chance to, to read um, but in the past couple of days, I've been slowly going through it, and and I think you kind of retouched on on some of the the notes as well. And we kind of came to a similar point of of um, being touched by this question that um, the Holy Father at the time was was writing: Can our encounter with the God who in Christ has can our encounter with God who in Christ has shown us his face and opened his heart, notice that the theme of vulnerability right there too, and open his heart be for us to not just informative, but performative. That is to say, can it change our lives so that we know we are redeemed through the hope that it expresses? I see right there, like some some of what we were talking about in our conversation, especially with my own life of of that seesaw of even recognizing, maybe learning in my head what what the faith was teaching, and that transition in the past couple of months to the performative that we're called to this now, that there's there is a redemption that we're called to now, and he's asking this question, can our encounter do this? 
I think we would both say yes. Yeah. And we're we're calling, you know, everyone that listens. I mean, it's the only reason we're doing this. Like like we started with, we're not here to rant, but to to call people into this, to invite people into this this great encounter that is not merely informative but performative. And you know, hopefully, in our ongoing episodes, we can we can talk about this. Do you want to add something to that? Yeah, briefly, I would say as I'm listening to you, I, what's coming up in me is the knowledge of what I had shared early on uh, today that I didn't know. Hope, hope, as uh, Pope Benedict so is performative. I didn't know it. Remember when I said that hope, hoping against hope in the dark times of mm, college, yeah, yeah. or. Um, that it was and and to being drawn to the Eucharist, even when I didn't understand, a, mm-hmm. have a personal relationship. There was a hope that was performing, drawing me, and then to know the performative encounter and the accessibility in our interior life. I, I guess I want our listeners to hopefully as we're talking about our lives, like go back over their own life in the wonder of um, wonderment of how hope, the Holy Spirit's hope, presence of hope was performative, even when you first didn't understand it, like you've heard in both of our lives. And then how it comes into this living encounter of um, the excitement and and awe of the intimacy of actually surrendering to the performative hope in practical everyday ways. Um, in other words, the shift from how hope was present and performative even when we didn't have the language, and now that we have some of the language in mystery, how much more... Um, we can participate in the power of, of Jesus's bodily resurrection. Mm. I mean, it, and not, and not run in fear from being loved. It's easy to hide from being loved. I know that in my own life, you know, um, I know I'm loved, but then I kind of hide it, mm-hmm. you know, and then no, 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 no. No, come out. Let me see your face, like in the Song of Songs. Let me see your face. Um, so I hope our listeners and and ourselves, we have courage today to yeah. to receive the love that's there for us and let it be performative in response. Mm-hmm. You know? Maybe, I don't know, it's back to you, but just spontaneously, I would hope we could pray that we not hide from ourselves in what's most lovable in our bodies and let shame be loved away. Mm. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good thing to maybe leave, like you said, ourselves and our listeners with to not run away from that face of love. Yeah. And look back at our own lives even more so but not alone 
by seeing how hope was yeah. performative. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, with that, we maybe conclude this episode and just want to invite you. This was not meant to be two people simply preaching anything. Um, we, we really started this with the idea of creating as much as a format of, of conversational listening as much as possible. And I'd like to invite everyone into that. So it's not just the two of us. So if there's anything you'd like to share with us or things you'd like us to dive more deeply into, please feel free to maybe comment that or, or send us something. Um, yeah. And share this with, with anyone you think could benefit um, like I said, our, our mission is truly to, to help people come into this proper integration of the body and the interior life, that they're not to be separated, and that the Lord, in his resurrection, truly mends the two, and, and we're all called to that. So thank you for listening, and um, yeah, please, like I said, subscribe and share with anyone that you think could benefit. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.